Good morning, friends. Our Bible reading uh, is from Luke chapter 19, and we start from verse 11. If you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 852. So it's Luke chapter 9 from verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned Ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and you reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Every so often I post on Facebook, sometimes my granddaughter, sometimes a Sydney FC photograph or a Celtic jersey or a Socceroos comment, good win last night. But a couple of weeks ago, I posted something about ministry. It's always interesting to see your reactions people have. I was uh, excited about uh, all the opportunities God was giving in one week. We talk about busy life, but also great opportunities for the gospel. And so I wrote this. I called it the life of a pastor. Preaching twice on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, urging genuine repentance, trust in Christ, and generosity in view of coming judgment. Host a newcomers event for 30 new people to Nawi on Sunday afternoon. Attend the 6 p.m. service to worship and cast strategy 
for welcoming and incorporation at church. On Monday, speak to our computer group on heaven and John 14 on Jesus being the way, the truth and the life. Then go and lead a funeral for a lovely committed Christian woman at 1.30pm, sharing the hope of eternal life through Christ. Write AGM papers on God's work amongst us and through our cross-cultural workers over the year. Write the missions report reflecting on three faithful families concluding as missionaries and the joy of three new couples being added to the work. God at work for his glory and our good. Leading a home group on Joel chapter 1 on lamenting and repentance. I met with and prayed for a man just diagnosed with lung cancer. Praying. I was praying for the family of Reverend Michael Glenatzis who went to glory this week. A life lived well for Christ. Preparing to share with our craft group tomorrow and purchase gospel tracts for our women's gingerbread housemaking event tomorrow night where 100 women will hear the good news of Christmas through a gifted female preacher. I will dive into Luke 18 to write a sermon on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, showcasing the grace and mercy of God. And then I'll attend a wedding on Friday afternoon to witness the wedding of a young woman who was just two years of age when I first met her at Nawi. Oh yes, and watch my middle daughter walk down the aisle as a bridesmaid. To God be the glory. Interesting responses on Facebook. I didn't share it to say, woe is me, I'm so busy. But rather to highlight the joy, the delight, the privilege of gospel ministry. And if my week was like that every week, there would be great joy in my heart. Sure, you have to rest. I went to the soccer the next night after writing that. But there's the beautiful joy and delight of gospel ministry. See, Jesus has been lifted up because... You see, there are eternal consequences to everything we do. And ministry reminds me that we live in light of eternity. I need to be captivated. Not by the Socceroos win, although we're captivated a little bit by that. But captivated by Christ and all the difference that he makes in life. But you see, it's not just pastors who live in light of eternity. Obviously, because of our work, we're doing more of that ministry. But we all are called to serve Christ in different ways. And so as you reach the end of another year, you're ready for your holiday, I ask you to ask the question, what's the point of your life? And what about next year? What's the point of your life next year? More of the same? Different? What's God calling you to do, to be, to become? Will it just be, for some people, the drudgery of work, the stress of family, the anxiety of increasing interest rates, the fear of war in Ukraine, instability in our world financial systems. What are you looking forward to? I'll remind you that God calls us to a Christ-centered future perspective and to serve him, to find a place to give your life for his work. Friends, in the parable of the Ten Minas, Jesus provides us with a vital future perspective which we need that gives our lives perspective. It tells us that life is going somewhere. You and I are going somewhere. That is, there's a goal to our existence. We don't just live and go around in circles. The world is linear. We are heading somewhere. We are heading to new heavens and a new earth. And we want to live in such a way to take as many people with us as possible to be with Christ forever. 
there is something worth living for and working for. Firstly, the king and his coming kingdom. Luke sets the scene for us in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he had just been with Zacchaeus, by the way, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus in his ministry is traveling slowly and deliberately towards the capital city of Jerusalem. He has been doing this for a number of months now. And Luke structures his whole gospel around, from 951 onwards, around this journey. Jesus is heading towards his crucifixion. But you see, there was escalating anticipation amongst Jesus' followers about this climax to his ministry. In their heads, it wasn't his death. In their minds was, he's going to become king. He's going to kick out the Romans. Finally, victory for Israel. In Luke 19, they've reached Jericho. Luke 19, verse 1. 30 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. There's a great air of expectancy. Now, the king is finally going to take up his throne in Jerusalem, they think. The kingdom of God is about to appear at any moment. And friends, the Old Testament prophets had said to them, a great day will come, the kingdom of God will come, the Messiah will come. They've been looking forward to this day. They look forward to the overthrow of the Roman tyrants through this political ruler, the Messiah. Now, Jesus, as as you read the Gospels, realized that multiple times he tries to teach them that it's not going to work out this way. In fact, that his his coming as king is going to be delayed for a period of time. He's going to go through the cross and resurrection, return to heaven, then come back. But they don't get it. In fact, you see, just the previous chapter, he said this, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Luke 18, 31 to 34. So Jesus wants to set them straight. He tells a parable. Now, up to this stage, you notice most of the parables, he's uh, using the parables to have a go at the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who don't understand Jesus. But not here. He tells a parable so his own disciples understand about the coming of his kingdom. The first thing he says, Jesus will not claim the kingdom immediately. He says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Jesus is making a spiritual point out of this parable. You see, Jesus will have a long journey before enjoying his coronation. In fact, he will leave the world altogether. He will die and be raised to life. He will ascend to heaven. Then he will return to be acknowledged as king at the second coming. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So rather than offering the disciples messianic power and glory, that's what they wanted, to sit on his thrones with Jesus... He offers his disciples an opportunity for service. They want glory and authority. He gives them ministry, right? That's what he gives them at this stage. Friends, we live between his two comings. We talk about the kingdom of God being inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you if I'm here. But it will be consummated at his return, completed. The inauguration of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom, the completion of the kingdom. 
In the meantime, we have a job to do. We are between those two comings. To reach the nations with the gospel, to grow mature disciples, to minister to the poor, to do the five M's that we talk about at this church, magnification, magnifying God, membership, seeing people become members of God's church. We become mature or mature disciples, maturity, that we engage in ministry and mission. Right? What are we doing between the two comings? Jesus says, no, 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 here's, here's the meaner. Go and do something with it. We have a future hope. He will come back. Let's live in view of that future hope. But there he says, there are rebels to his kingdom. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, Jesus' listeners of his day could easily relate to this situation. Because what happened in Israel when the Herods had to be appointed rulers in Israel, they would go to Rome, you see, they had to go away to Rome, they're made uh, rulers, then they come back to rule. So they used to the whole idea that the king goes away, he's made a king, then comes back. In, case, in one case, 30 years earlier, after the death of Herod the Great, his son Achilles went to Rome to ask Augustus Caesar to make him king over Judea. But Herod the Great's dynasty was so unpopular that the Jews sent a delegation of 50 senior men to oppose that appointment. So that Jesus picks up in the parable something they, they're, they're aware of, they understand. And so it is with Jesus. Many people will rebel against him they don't want him to be their king. Friends, no different today, right? You live for Jesus in the 21st century in Australia, and you run into people everywhere who reject Jesus as their king. They don't want him to be king. They want to do life their own way. There are individuals who do that. I remember talking to one guy and uh, shared the gospel. He loved catching up and reading the Bible, and we did Christianity Explained together, and uh, he never repented. And I said, listen, but Jesus is king. You need to accept him as saviour and king. And he wasn't interested. After a while, I said, you know, if you continue to not receive him, you'll find yourself under the judgment of God. That's a terrible judgment for eternity. And well, well I don't like a God who's a judge. I just like the, the, the one who's love. <laughs> I said, well, you've got to get the, the, the full Jesus here. He calls you to repentance and faith. But he chose to live in sinfulness rather than repentance and trusting in Jesus. Or another woman I did Christianity explained with. And as we worked through it and... She was just so consumed with herself that she would not submit to anyone else as king. Someone else said to me once, they said, uh, I cannot put anyone, I have two daughters, a single mum, I cannot put anyone above my daughters. God calls me to put him first above everyone else. I cannot love God more than my daughters. I will not have him as my king. All types of rebels, much, some are much uh, harsher in their re rejection of Jesus, just need to go on Facebook and make a Christian comment and see what happens. But sometimes God changes those, those rebels, doesn't he? I mean, C.S. Lewis is a great example. He didn't want Jesus to be his king, but God's love drew him. And he writes this, his own testimony. You must picture me alone in the room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In a Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected 
and reluctant convent in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gate to a prodigal who is broading, kicking and struggling and resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Rebels that God draws to himself. But despite the people's opposition, he was made king forever and returned home in the parable. He's gone, he's come home despite the opposition. Nothing can stop Jesus' final victory. That's why we sing the battle belongs to the Lord. Nothing can stop his victory. And friends, at the end of the parable, we read the destiny of those who reject Jesus' kingship. And it's a terrible destiny that those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's a harsh end to a parable, isn't it? Do you ever wish that wasn't in the parable? You just... Some people get to heaven and the rest, well, we just won't mention that. We'll talk about he heaven, but we just won't mention hell. That's modern day Christianity, by the way. <laughs> In most places, we talk about heaven, we just don't want to talk about the other one. But Jesus does not hide from speaking about it. See, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, there was, he was in torment in Hades. Some of us wish that wasn't there either. 21st century Christianity, without a judgment, just, just life. But Jesus will not give us the liberty to soften the message of his judgment of hell, eternal torment, and judgment, as hard as it is. There's no room in the kingdom for rebels. Everyone does not get saved in the end. Bring them here, he says, and kill them in front of me. Then there are the faithful servants of the king. The king went away, he gave 10 of his servants a mina each. A mina is about three months average wage. Now that's a quite an amount. So when they're listening to this, oh, he gave them a lot of money. And then put this money to work until I come back. This is really important here. God has resourced us to do his work between his return to heaven and his return as king. He's resourced us. That's the whole point of the parable. Don't be mistaken, though. No one gets to heaven by good works, but no one gets to heaven without good works. Let me say that again. No one gets to heaven by good works. It's by salva salvation by God's grace through faith alone, but no one gets there without good works because our good works are the evidence of true saving faith. Let me just remind you how this comes up in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's all grace, it's all faith, it's all a gift. For we are, verse 10, with God's work, handiwork or workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, our good works are an overflow of our relationship with Jesus and they point back to testimony that we have true saving faith. The Pharisee and the tax collector that we looked at last week, what did he do, the tax collector? He simply said, have mercy on me, a sinner, and God declared him righteous, justified. Okay, your works don't save you, but they point to your saving faith. 
He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. First one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good faithful servants. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. This man answered, Take charge of five cities. Two servants commended for their work. The first one is called trustworthy. They're both given extra responsibilities. I'm not sure what that looks like, but they receive blessing because of their faithful service. What might a mina represent for us? A talent, a gift, a quality, an ability to be used for God's glory. Spiritual gifts used in love, leadership, teaching, hospitality, evangelism, administration, healing, whatever it happens to be. Or natural talents used in love, singing, gardening, cooking, uh, financial expertise. God can take whatever we have, whatever gifts and talents, spiritual, natural talents for his glory. If you serve well, does it mean you get to look after some special part of heaven with five cities or ten cities? We're not quite sure what Jesus is getting at here. But clearly in some sense, heaven will be enriched for us. We use our gifts for him. The mark of good servants is they make wise long-term investments. They have a future perspective. Their lives are going somewhere. They have goals and hopes. They see the big picture, or I might say they have a grander vision of life. And uh, you've probably heard this story. I've, li- I've read it m- many times in different settings. It's a story of three workmen on a building site. I want to get a sense of how you see your life and what you do in ministry. And uh, and a television report asked them what they were doing on the building site. The first man replies, well, I'm breaking rock, right? Second says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm earning money to feed my wife and kids. He asked the third man, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral, that's what I'm doing. So every day you do a little bit there and a little bit there, and you think, I don't know, I'm just serving people morning tea, or I'm just singing a song, or I'm just running a Bible study, or I'm just helping. No, 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 no. You are part of something bigger, much grander than God is doing. He's making disciples to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's what we're doing. Every person you have over to your home to share a meal with, uh, every conversation you have over coffee, and you bring Jesus into it, everything you do is part of a grander vision to see disciples made for the glory of God. You know, Bible study leaders, SRE teachers, pastoral carers, kids, youth leaders, women's outreach events, our missionaries. Friends, we must see our lives as something far greater and grander than just the mundane and the ordinary. God uses that ordinary and the mundane to do something great. So if we're going to uh, 2023, uh, we're looking for some new home group leaders. We're praying, exploring options for that. At 9 o'clock service with our creche here, Brian Wallach has been coordinating the creche, but often he gets stuck in there because he doesn't have enough volunteers, and he needs to be in here worshipping Jesus and, as well. And we think, hey, who else is going to serve? How many more volunteers can we get? So we share the load at 9 a.m. Families and friends of your younger families here, and uh, uh, Tim and Sean have been overseeing a bit of a program with picnics and other events throughout the year. And... Uh, Tim's stepping down from that, but Sean's looking for some people to build a bit of a committee, a team of people say, yeah, we're going to plan and strategize how to do this better, to see more people included and loved in, in that demographic in our community. So we need people to say, yeah, yeah, I can do, be part of that. Friends, then there's the wicked servant. 
Oh, before I get to that, by the way, tonight with another baptism. You know, there's a young guy, Hudson Haddon's been baptized. Obviously, his parents have been praying for him for years. His kids' club leaders have been ministering to him. His youth leaders have been ministering to him. And today, you see, he's part of a grander vision of God where God is making disciples. Then there's the wicked servants. Now the servant came, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. He unfairly characterizes this king as a bad man, an evil man, an exploiter. The king has given him three months' wages to go and use it, and he refuses to do anything. The master trusts him, but he does nothing. The wicked servant decides to play it safe. But in trying to avoid the wrath of his master, which he feared so much, he was actually incurring that wrath to a far greater degree. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why didn't you put my money on deposit that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? What's Jesus' point? Let me say, I think in his parable, he's warning us against laziness and passivity. Where you don't do anything. Oh, well, let someone else serve. Let someone else minister. No, no, I'm not going to. I'm not sure God's a good God. I'm not sure God will look after me. You see, this wicked servant doesn't have a good perspective of God. He doesn't have a, a, a trust in his master. It's like the wicked servant doesn't really trust God, doesn't have faith in God, is not living for God. And even they have talents, they're not going to use them anywhere. To be captivated by Christ. See, our young adults uh, will hit some train stations with Christmas cookies and Christmas literature in the next couple of weeks. Go out there. They're not going to be passive doing nothing. They're going to try something. Faithful servants will invest time, talent, and prayer at our Christmas fair on December the 10th. Youth leaders are investing their gifts in serving our teenagers. Deacons that uh, our members will elect will serve the church in fulfilling God's purposes for us. Missionaries leave family and security and travel across the globe. Because they've been given a mina, but they're not going to just hide it under a bushel somewhere. They're not going to just say, no, no, I don't trust you, God. I'm not going to do anything with it. And friends, some of us think we don't have gifts and talents to be effective for Christ. Sometimes when people come to know, we say, oh, you've got enough singers and everyone else. I'm not sure I can do anything. Yes, you can. <laughs> I can get you repeated after me. I won't. Right? We need the, your gifts and talents. And, and God has made you unique and special with a variety of gifts and talents to be used for his glory. Every person has a place to serve. Someone says, oh, I don't, can't preach like Billy Graham. Can't sing or play an instrument. I'm too shy to start teach SRE or start a Bible study. I'm not good at learning languages to be a missionary. Friends, we can make excuses, but we all have a mina given to us by God. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. In Luke's gospel, listen to this, we're not told what happens to this man at the end of the parable. Only that his mean is removed from him and given to others. But in Matthew's gospel, this version of the same story, not exactly a similar version of the story, ends with judgment for this person. He said, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a picture of hell. That someone who claimed to be a servant, maybe spent all their life in church, week after week, but is not truly a servant, truly doesn't know Jesus, hasn't been uh, born again, and he's cast out. Daryl Bock writes helpfully in his commentary, this man is condemned on the basis of his own word, that is, on the basis of his own hard attitude to God, for he sees the master as a hard, unjust taskmaster. He doesn't see him as a loving God. Behind his lack of fruit is a lack of recognition of God's grace. The absence of faith is what Jesus condemns here, for it is that hard attitude that prevents the servant from pursuing the master's call. Membership in a church is not a union card to heaven. Knowing and embracing God's grace is. As you reach the end of another year, have you asked the question, what's the point of my life? What are you looking forward to? Friends, God calls us to have a Christ-centered future perspective, to rely on his saving grace and then ensure that we use all that he has given us for the glory of his name. What are you doing with your mina? Lord God, uh, I do pray with thanks, Lord, that you are God who saves us and transforms us and gifts us and empowers us. And I give you thanks, Lord, that you have used this body of believers here this year to see disciples made, the lost reached, people cared for. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who's using their gifts and talents for your glory. But Lord, I ask that you would just Help us to have a, a clear perspective, a grander vision of life than just the ordinary. Because we know that you use the ordinary for something much larger. You're fulfilling your purposes to build your church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against. So Lord, we, we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would speak to us, change our hearts and motivate us, direct us. Lord, we tie this time of year, ready for Christmas, ready for a holiday. Lord, keep us focused on you. Lord, we'll be captivated by Christ and live in light of him. Amen.